Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you might have noticed some media companies are feeling the heat on what they describe as a tightening advertising market. In some sectors like linear TV, ad revenues are declining. But there's a very different story coming out of the investor briefings in recent weeks of some of the world's biggest brands. Many, as we'll cover today, have and are increasing their advertising promotion and much bigger overall marketing budgets. And for those advocates of brand investment to ensure longer-term business growth, it sounds like some of these listed CFOs and CEOs actually agree. L'Oreal's overall advertising and promotion budgets, for example, are up 11% in 2023, and its global CEO told investors the company had seen, and I quote, spectacular productivity increases of up to 10 to 15% for L'Oreal brands that have trialed its proprietary AI tool called BetIQ to measure and improve L'Oreal's advertising and promotion investments. We'll dig into that shortly, but L'Oreal is not out on a limb. Unilever, Diageo, Kellogg, Gucci, Hershey, Mondelez, Clorox, Ford, and insurance companies like Allstate and Geico told investors in recent weeks they're upping advertising and marketing budgets. Interestingly, the main sector hacking their ad and marketing spends are tech companies, ironically, as they haul in perhaps 60% of that global budget growth advertisers speak of. Amazon, Meta, and Alphabet are cutting their own ad and marketing budgets. So it's fascinating what's happening at the moment. And on the mics today is Brian Weezer, a longtime US-based equities analyst on the listed marketing services hold co's such as WPP, Omnicom, Publicis, and IPG, and an avid watcher of listed brand owners and what CEOs and CFOs say about their marketing investments. It's all Brian's work that I've referenced above, and now we have him on the mics, uh, beaming in from Portland, Oregon. To keep this digestible, there's so much good stuff to unpack. We're going to cut this conversation into two parts. We'll cover brands and their ad and marketing budgets today. And then in part two, we'll hear Brian's take on what's happening with media and the hold co's. So welcome, Brian. Great to have you on. It's been a while and apologies for my thick head. Well, thicker than usual anyway. Good to have you on. Let's start with the big picture here, Brian. Brands seem to be upbeat about increasing investments in advertising, promotion and marketing, but that's not necessarily being reflected in media or among the hold co's. What are we witnessing here, Brian? And welcome. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, What we're seeing from a marketer lens is that we have a really healthy economy in most parts of the world. Uh, Obviously, there are lots of challenges out there. Inflation is still a bugbear in many places. Um, There obviously are many people who are disproportionately impacted by the consequences of the pandemic. And obviously, uh, it's terrible when there are wars and other conflicts going on. But despite all of that, underlying economic conditions are good in an absolute sense and on a relative basis too. And if you're a marketer, you're trying to grow your business, you want to capitalize on that. It's as simple as that. The question is always, what's the best way to do it? Advertising marketing activity is one of many ways and happens to be a primary way in certain categories to capture that business. And it's as simple as that. Different though, Brian, to what some of the narrative is in the market, certainly in the, in the media sector, agency sector, and even you know in tech, that sort of 
positive, upbeat outlook on we're going to spend to grow and invest in brands and marketing, that's kind of not what we're seeing, at least in the in the media and agency scene. Is, would that be fair all over? Well, let's separate the actual uh, growth results that we're seeing from agencies. We can get to them and mm. uh, actual growth that we're seeing from media owners. I would think it's worth starting off by pointing out that it's often the case that when things go well, a human or a person working on behalf of a corporation is more likely to give themselves credit than, say, credit macro or external factors. And the opposite is also true. When things are not so good for a person or a business, you're just more likely to say it's some other external factor that's causing this. It's not me. I did my best. Can't be me. Now, maybe people believe this usually, maybe not. But it's definitely where the narratives go. And so we have to separate, first of all, when we're hearing companies saying things, that just because uh, someone is a CEO of a very large company, just because they're very well compensated individuals, just because they appear to be very sophisticated, they come from Davos and they go wherever, it doesn't mean that what they're saying is accurate. So we have to start <laughs> with that premise, right? Are we you can... talking here about the brand conversations here or the media, sort of the brand owner narrative well, or I media and agency? What I said is universally true. But what I'm saying is that we have heard from many companies in the industry, especially those who have not grown uh, as well as they would have liked to have grown. In general, you see this trend that they tend to blame external factors. It could be a digital company like Snap, where frequently they're saying, oh, well, this, that, or the other external factors causing our weakness. You definitely hear it from almost every company in the television industry around the world. Um, maybe a little less now than they were, but you're constantly hearing references to uncertainty. You're constantly hearing references to macro factors. And despite that, if we roll up the actual ad revenues, the actual spending going into the industry, it's growing very robustly. So these, how can these things be true? We have to do some imagining to get there. When agencies say there is uncertainty, and that's why we have weak results. Well, what I infer from that is there are ad products or advertising-related products that probably have sales cycles which are too long. And if you have a massively scaled ad product that is ideal for a marketer who is themselves uncertain, then you get the growth because the money's going to get spent one way or another. And so that, these are just some general observations. Again, when we have... TV-based, uh, television-based sellers of advertising saying they're weak and it's the economy's fault, that's a misreading of the, <laughs> of the advertising industry. And I'm not accusing anyone of lying or misleading. It's just inaccurate. Yeah. Um, and so just yeah. when you say, when you say like there is a, a, you know, someone may have an ad product that sales cycle is too long. What, what do you mean by that? Give us an, an example. Well, let's take agencies. Agencies sell services that have very long sales cycles and there's nothing wrong with that. The actual process of providing an agency a record offering and whether it's media creative or otherwise is a very long sales cycle. You know, at the extreme, you could take um, IT services contracts, which have multi-year time horizons and, you know, they also might have multi-year sales cycles. On the other hand, media, or let's say principle-based trading solutions, mm -hmm. have much shorter mm -hmm. sales cycles, right? Because you're solving a problem today. You're capitalizing on a budget that's available for use now. And that, in the context of agencies in particular, I don't think it's a coincidence that the two agencies that are growing the fastest are the two that are most aggressively capitalizing on principle-based trading models.
Omnicom and Publicis. And, and what do you mean by that when you say principle? I just mean ad advertising products that might be them reselling inventory, whether they're mm. producing it themselves, whether they're buying it on their own book and then reselling it. Omnet PMX are the two main products for Omnicom and Publicis. Again, this is a close to preview for, for the next uh, the next. It episode. is a teaser. But We're doing a teaser here. It's a teaser. It's a teaser. But I, I make the example to say that, okay, let's take everyone at their word and say this is actually what they're hearing marketers say. I am uncertain, therefore I am reluctant to commit a budget to you for the service you're offering. But th at the same time, the marketer is still spending 7 or 8 or 9% more year over year. Mm. So yeah, where's exactly. the money going? It's going exactly somewhere. Exactly the question. Well, yeah, well, you, let's, can you give us the, the holy grail answer on this, Brian? This is exactly where we're going. So let's let's park agencies and media for the next edition. That's a teaser for what's next. But literally, in the last couple of weeks, you've been on the earnings calls, the invest earnings calls and, and with consumer goods, auto, insurance companies. You've heard from CEOs and CFOs who should uh, actually uh, excite some of the brand marketing advocates um, because they are talking about investing in their advertising and promotions and brand to drive growth both short and longer term. Now, all that stuff is sort of a lot of the industry laments that CEOs and CFOs don't get this, but we've actually heard what I mean in the last couple of weeks, according to the sort of the reports and analysis I've seen from you, Brian, we've got L'Oreal, as I said, Mondelez, Diageo, Gucci, Clorox, Hershey, Unilever, Ford, all talking about investing for the longer haul and to drive growth. So what I want to ask you first up, is this new rhetoric from CFOs and CEOs or is it a return to what they've done in the past? this whole, okay, we're going to invest to grow um, rather than in, in advertising and promotion and marketing rather than cut? Is it new language or a return to something they've done in the past? Well, so a couple of things. First, I, I should clarify, I'm not actually participating on these calls. I'm no longer a sell-side analyst. I, I'm merely either going through the transcripts or listening to the calls like any other person, yes. uh, civilian can do. Now, Another thing that's important for those who are uh, subscribers to the premium version of Medicine Wall and have access to my uh, takes on this, or if you just go through these transcripts yourself, I aggregate these in part to help show where the narrative is as much as anything. Just because someone has made a statement doesn't mean it's true, right? That's a really important thing to keep in mind. It is worth noting what a big buyer of advertising at the CEO and CFO level is saying, because it does reflect a lot of things, right? It reflects how they are either perceive things internally, or it reflects how they want to tell their investors about what's happening. And their investors and, and sell-side analysts who cover those sectors are not the same constituents or stakeholders as people focus on the marketing industries. Right, so yeah. we got to keep that in mind from a call it media criticism perspective and understanding like why is what being said and what does it really mean. But there is a lot that you so can. So they're trying to tell a good story, right? They're trying to sell a, a tell and sell a good story to investors. Yeah, exactly. And so what what I am doing at the same time is I'm trying to look at what they're saying. I'm then also trying to look at what they're doing, and I look at what they're doing through multiple lenses. One is they're disclosed advertising expenses when they disclose those numbers or marketing spend or any any hard number. I'm also obviously then focused much more on the media owners, which we'll talk more about next week, and, and, and looking at what the revenues are and then trying to triangulate where that money is coming from. And like most people who are in and around the industry, I talk to people in the industry just to understand what really is happening. And I try to put all those things together. So this was a very, very long-winded way 
to answer your question <laughs> or where I think you were going with the question, I would argue that while most marketers want to present that they are focused on their brand and building their brands, at a practical level, they are not. They are, in fact, focusing much, much more on uh, performance-based advertising, defined any way they need to, to be able to demonstrate, at least that it, to themselves, if not in reality, that they are driving something resembling performance. And so credible claims of performance that sellers of advertising can offer are more successful, I will argue, as ad products than those which attempt to provide a longer time horizon-based brand-centric metrics. And that is one of the reasons why television is struggling as it is. It's not about the fact that audiences might be eroding or cord cutting or or any other factor. The single most important factor, well, there's two. The brands that were biggest on television or biggest brands 20, 30, 40 years ago have consistently and arguably more aggressively been shifting their budgets away from media, which generally is supportive of brand building and more towards media, which is supportive of performance. Those who sell performance will claim, oh yeah, and we could build your brand too. And, and here's a report that says you've got brand. Practitioners don't believe it, but they're buying the performance-based media because it helps them justify their existence for another year. Okay. The brand builders really should care more, but it's not actually what's happening, I don't think. Well, just there is some comments in, in some of your analysis that, that struck me. One of them was the Diageo comments where it said the CFO actually stated that Diageo has increased our marketing investment, and I quote, increased our marketing investment to support the global tequila rollout. That's investing for the long term. We are building a new category in these parts of the world. We invested in Johnny Walker in Europe, which has grown double digit, and we invested in India, and we've invested in Chinese white spirits. And so what does this tell you about how we approach advertising promotion investment is that we invest where we see the best ROI possible and where there is an opportunity for us to grow the business, both the long term, but also more immediately. So listen, is it a confluence of everything that's actually saying we're going to use performance to drive this? Is that There's a bigger picture there that they're talking about investing in marketing to grow. Yeah, I actually thought that one was really interesting too, because I actually I interpreted that one very directly at face value as them saying we believe in this business, it's a greenfield opportunity for us, and we think this is the way to do it. And mm. I think that that I interpreted purely at face value, nothing more than that. Right, just as as growing a sector, building out a sector where there's there is growth for them, a new category. Let's go to L'Oreal. It's an interesting one. Your analysis uh, is equally some great insights in there, but L'Oreal's um, advertising promotion is up 11%. They're spending about 13.4 billion euros on advertising and marketing or advertising promotion, actually. And the CEO, which is stuff that comes through in the transcripts from you, is that had spectacular productivity increases of up to 10 to 15%, which we mentioned at the top. I'm really interested in this, Brian, because um, there's so much talk about AI. What does AI productivity increases mean or look like at L'Oreal, and who does it impact? Do you know what he's talking about there? Well, I can't speak for them, but I, I and I don't, I can't pretend to know specifically beyond what they've said. But I do know in general that there are so many applications of AI in terms of just labor-saving efforts inside of agencies and inside of marketing services. So something as simple as any repetitive task, right? Can, if it hasn't already been automated with a little bit of intelligence and a little bit of insight, it uh, can be. 
more easily than was true prior periods. So I think when you think about most of the functions that live inside of agencies, it's not really high-level thinking uh, that's necessary. There is obviously a benefit to higher-level thinking. I think that rolling up consumer insights, for example, being able to take whatever data you do have about what sold or what resonated or you know, whether it's, uh, I'm just making this up, you've run a campaign on Instagram and you've got some data and you've got some sales data that you're mapping to it. And in the olden times, you would have had a data analyst try to look at both data sets and look for common threads. And now you're going to automate that process. I mean, something as simple as that. You'll automate more parts of it. And so the intelligence layer is more on what to look for, how to look, not on the actual process. Mm. That's yeah, interesting, I think, but I, I can't speak yeah. to the specific product. Well, it's just they talk about in this instance, it's this AI tool, Bet IQ, to measure and improve the return on L'Oreal's AP and uh, advertising promotion investments, and it will be deployed across sixty percent of the company's total group ad budgets globally by the end of this year. They are getting some understanding there of how to optimize channels by the sounds of it with AI doing the grunt work. Uh, that seems to me like what's happening. Yeah, I, I, that sounds about right. I think it would be interesting. This would be a really good question, obviously, for L'Oreal, let alone the agency partners they have in each country. Mm. Because they do, as far as I can tell, continue to rely very heavily on agencies that they work with in different countries around the world. Now, what's really interesting, of course, is because they do have different agency partners in different regions. And each agency also has uh, lots of AI-based products that they're working with. I mean, this is kind of why I was always surprised that AI would be as big of a deal, for lack of a better word, inside of um, the advertising world as it's kind of become. Because, I mean, when I was an analyst covering agencies in 2016, my former company, but before I was there, Group M and Zaxxis was certainly talking about uh, using AI-based products. Uh, You certainly had a lot of ad tech companies that were building, filling their AI prowess in that era as well. It was a constant evolution in terms of the application of it, like this going from automation to machine learning to something that gets called AI. Mm. And it's just an ongoing evolution, right? So automating processes, adding more data, adding more complicated rules that are based on bodies of knowledge that are automatically generated. Like it's all just an iterative process for making you could argue more efficient or less labor intensive activities that then allow the humans who are involved to hopefully focus on higher value decision-making. Listen, one of the other things that was um, in the L'Oreal statements was uh, around e-commerce. It grew nine and a half percent this year, e-com sales to L'Oreal. It counts for about, I think, 27% of L'Oreal's total global sales is coming now through e-com. But e-com, like we've seen in, in Australia, Brian, e-coms come off, the growth rates and have come off and, and there's a sort of a bit of a a return to physical retail in some ways. And a lot of our, well, there was, a, there was a, a window there where it slowed down. It may be picking up again now. But the point here is that um, with L'Oreal, that there's a really interesting development where Amazon has, has finally found a way to convince them to do luxury on its mega shopping site, right? So they've got Lancome in there and the feel is very different to the simple, cheap, down and dirty Amazon, let's move it. And now they've seen some really big growth. So essentially luxury, Amazon has spent three years trying to convince Lancome to get on there and they've done it with some special stuff. Do you see anything in that as a a bellwether for something else? 
Yeah, well, again, actually, this is a good reminder of like how to interpret these things. So when the CEO or CFO is talking about this initiative or that initiative, you do want to put it in, in context of how they're presenting their either uh, a source of why the revenues didn't grow as fast as they could have grown or how they're saying they're trying to capitalize on this trend or that trend, and they may just be examples. But with that said, I guess there's two important points. One is just the increasing reliance on e-commerce that almost every marketer still has. Depending on what their base of revenue was, it's generally still going up uh, everywhere. I think there were some unique elements going on for L'Oreal specifically. But I think that the, the on the luxury question, it is interesting. Now, I've heard I'm not a consumer of uh, Lancome products or most, uh, I probably should probably have some kind of skincare regime that I don't, but whatever. So I don't <laughs> claim to really know the category that well as a consumer, but I know that it's not like it's, um, it's not apparel. Like if I want a Hugo Boss suit or, you know, if I want, uh, I'm not, I guess I don't wear a dresses really but if i wanted a <laughs> not, couture, not that we know of brian let's leave that, that, we that shall we <laughs> if i wanted if i wanted haute couture of some sort i want the specific maker i'm not going to browse and see what i can get shipped tomorrow although maybe that's an idea too and so it's kind of interesting to think about the role of of e-com for luxury especially when you think about how how big so many of the what, what do they call it? Hard luxury versus soft luxury, right? Like watches and jewelry, as well as the whole couture stuff versus makeup. Experience. Right? Right. Oh, okay. Makeup, um, right, yeah, right. right. And so when I think about the the amount of money that's spent, I mean, LVMH is a massive advertiser mm. and mostly on the harder luxury products, right? With most of what they have. And I don't think a lot of, I'm under the impression that the majority of the, of the, the, the top tier luxury firms really they focus much more on their owned and operated properties. Yeah, direct-to-consumer stuff, isn't it right? DTC yeah. is where they focus, yeah. Because they, you don't need a marketplace to go find it. You know exactly mm. what you want. Why would they have an intermediary? So it is kind of mm. interesting if, and maybe it's also because something like cosmetics is a little bit more on the mass consumer goods side, and mm. maybe it actually lends itself better. At the same time, they want to, presumably have a premium price you presumably want to create a perception of being luxurious and more you know higher end and so you do want to have more control over your environment either way it's notable that you know if, if amazon's finding ways to bring in more luxury brands in or higher end brands even then that is just another source of growth for them to come it is, and and in fact, I think L'Oreal noted that its direct to consumer, its own properties, its own e-commerce stuff, had not been affected by the Amazon uh, venture and going into the Amazon store. So, it looks like they may be, you know, getting some expanded reach and new business uh, out of that that maybe they weren't getting before at this point, anyway. Well, I should also add, sometimes I, I point things out because there are all sorts of read-throughs that um, maybe I'm not actually explicitly calling out. One of them is, and, and they're frankly raising questions that I don't claim to know the answer to, but I'm, it puts my antennae up and causes me to think. If we already talk about how big Amazon is as a seller of advertising, and they're, you know, they've grown at a very rapid clip, and they've done this despite a real focus on certain endemic categories, that, you know, first of all, if they can expand the number of endemic categories, that's a source of growth for them. And secondly, of course, if they can find ways to get non-endemic 
categories to become bigger advertisers, that's an important source of growth for them. There's so a bit of lingo um, there. Let's explain endemic, non-endemic for some of our listeners who oh, will be going, you know, these cats sound really smart, but I don't know what they're talking about. Let's pretend they're thinking that. Endemic is meaning a product that you can actually buy on an e-commerce site. Like, let's say gasoline you, you know, or petroleum products. You can't really buy petrol for you. I don't believe there is any e-commerce activity for petrol, right? Anywhere. Right. Um, <laughs> and yet, if you're, if you're Exxon or... British Petroleum, Petroleum or whomever, you know, isn't there an opportunity for e-commerce based advertising, retail media? There should be because the data is there. It should be pretty good, but it's never going to be an endemic category. Okay. Got whereas, it. whereas packaged goods, it's endemic all day long. Yeah. Um, so Unilever, it too is increased its, uh, what it calls brand and marketing investment by double digits in the last 12 months. Talk us through a little bit about what you see going on at at Unilever. And by the way, sorry, Brian, I should say, fascinating stat at L'Oreal, where 32, I think this is right, 32.4% of L'Oreal's total revenues is spent on advertising promotion. That's that's massive, right? That's, that's up there really high. Yeah. Now, when you look at those numbers, you do have to be conscious of differences of definition. So for example, and again, L'Oreal is just, it's all based on public disclosures, L'Oreal would include uh, amortization expense associated with kiosks in that number, uh, right? So uh, okay, you've got a store, right. you've got, right? So that's part of promotion. I don't know how much of it that is. Similarly yeah. with uh, Unilever, and there the percentage is in the teens as a percentage of revenue for what they call BMI. No, not body mass index from eating too much Ben and Jerry's. It's <laughs> brand and marketing investment. And it says 4.3% of turnover. Well, 14.3 now. Yeah, that's right. And that's yes, up why I a lot because yeah. I th- believe right. it was 13% the year prior. Now, brand and marketing investment is way beyond media. I believe they made a disclosure maybe a few years ago um, that was very specific conveying that the paid media, the actual money going to adver- going to uh, sellers of advertising was like 4 or 5% of that number, meaning right. or, or a, third of, a third of the BMI number is paid media. So there's a lot that goes into it that is not just paid media. But we can mm. definitely infer trends when they talk about the BMI number and how it's trending and what's going on. And we never know what's going on within individual countries, typically. We typically don't know if it's supporting certain brands. Now, what they did say is that they're focusing more on their top 30 brands, and that's where the most of the support of the spend is going. They are absolutely increasing their spend at a pretty rapid clip. You could calculate that this equates to like a double-digit growth rate for uh, BMI uh, for 23. They've said that they'll spend more. One of the most important points to keep in mind when you're interpreting trends from packaged goods companies, almost all of whom are increasing rapidly. Coca-Cola came out today um, when we're recording this and said something similar as well for themselves. When public companies are talking about increasing their spending, it's because it's a reversal, a significant reversal from what we saw a decade ago when the focus was on cost cutting, largely because of 3G, the Brazilian-based investor that started Mm. buying up a lot of companies and started aggressively implementing a version of ZBB zero based budgeting. And you saw a lot of negative consequences. Morale was hurt. This is with, was was, was hurt. it Kraft or what were the brands? Because yeah, uh, Warren, Warren, Warren Buffett was in them. Yeah, Warren Buffett right. was also an investor, but there were a lot of companies. But then there was this moment in 2019. It was the ding dong, the witch is dead moment. I still remember it very clearly where Kraft Heinz basically blew up. And it was 
clearly a consequence of just being overzealous in, in this, its efforts. And since that time, notwithstanding the pandemic, almost every packaged goods company, they, they knew this was unwise because in their hearts of hearts, the CEO and CFO level, they know they need to build brands. They know they need to spend money on advertising to sustain growth, that they can't be constantly cutting or they are going to harvest their businesses into oblivion. And so through the 2010s, after this aggressive era of cost cutting and some investors who might have preferred to see that, many of these companies have to justify that they're spending more on advertising because they actually generally believe in it, whether it's for performance basis, based advertising on a short-term basis or brand building on a long-term basis, put that aside. But the basic belief that they have at the tops of these companies is that you invest in advertising and marketing if you want to support long-term growth. And so they want to communicate that as much as they can to investors. And that's why you tend to see companies talking about this. I'm looking for other nuggets of information too while we're at it understand like what they're prioritizing what they're thinking if they talk about yeah ai is helping us with you know making ourselves more efficient with our marketing that's good to know when they say we're focusing more on our top 30 brands as the case with unilever that's useful to know too because it does say that they believe that they can get outsized amount of growth in a smaller set of their brands and that's where they're focusing Either way, that the well, trend that's that thirty power brands they talk about with Unilever, uh, Brian. It's thirty yeah. power brands, which account for around seventy five percent of company wide revenue. So, hence the focus, I guess. Exactly, and I think that the main. It's interesting because the takeaways you can get from Unilever can actually come from what you hear Coke saying, can come from what you hear P and G saying. They're kind of all doing roughly the same things. Mm. There are some variations, like again, P and G actually is. They reported much earlier in the in the earnings season, but they've actually been more of the anomaly in the industry in the sense that they are focusing way more on in-housing than anyone else. They are much more focused on certainly talking about taking their savings on their non-working spend and putting into so-called working spend. Going back to principle-based trading, principle-based trading can be working spend. <laughs> but right. uh, but you know th- that's the one thing that PNG is doing that's differently. Otherwise, I think that. Almost every large packaged goods company is roughly doing very similar things. Mm. So let's just jump to um, Mondelez as another example. Organic revenue is up 9.8% in the last quarter, 147 for the year. So it looks like it's doing all right. It's advertising and promotion budgets, again, increased by 21.6%. And so that equates to about 9% of revenue. So there's a difference there between what Unilever is doing at 14.x um, L'Oreal's doing it 30-something, but growth is there. They're seeing they're it, spending it's hard to compare. You, yeah, you, well, a couple of things. You can't compare the percentage of revenue allocated to these numbers directly because they're not even the same thing. In the case of Mondelez, I believe like the vast like, majority. Yeah, yeah they're, they're so-called A and C uh, number, the advertising and I forget what the C stands for, but much more of it is paid media. Um, right. right. So it's a way higher share. So they're not embedding as much of what might be brand expense at uh, Unilever. So it's not really comparable. The trends should be comparable, mm. right? Yeah. Not right. like that's what you want to focus on. That one went from 8% to 9% and the other went from 30 to 32%, right? That's yeah. that's the relevant metric. So it's the same trend. But mm. the other thing that's different and worth noting is because Mondelez is basically 100% food and more to point, 100% snacks, right? And mostly the kind of goods that you know you buy on a on a whim or a lot of them are they just have different characteristics in terms of what the 
their advertising needs are. But the trends are basically the same. Continuing increase on paid media, continuing increase on broader marketing, continuing support for it, and you're continuing to see decent organic growth. Diageo the same, Brian? Well, I mean, actually, their organic revenues was down 1%, but they uh, increased their organic spend in, in advertising promotion by 4%. And there was some, you know, some pretty what we talked about earlier from Diageo in terms of building out tequila and Johnny Walker. So um, what do you make of what's going on there? Well, liquor is a very different business uh, from everything I've I've been able to study. And last I checked, uh, I think a Johnny Walker is different than eating a caramel, probably. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although you could combine them and some people might like that could. product. They, yeah. I reckon um, they might. So no, because you got higher price points, you know, China is a different factor, uh, differently, you know, there's all, I, again, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert on Diageo in particular, but I do know that you can compare what's going on with Mondelez and Hershey, let's say, and even there, there might be some, you know, country level skews, but you can't really compare what's going on with Diageo. You can still look at the, you know, from my experience and interactions with people in, in the alcohol business, from a marketing perspective, I think they look to the rest of the packaged goods world and FMCGs, but I think because they're regulated, because they they also rely more on, there's the other issue of relying on heavily on restaurants and bars, and that can create different trends too. Right, right. Well, interesting. As you say, though, trend line similar, although it's going, they're investing outside of the revenue uh, growth. Uh, that's down, advertising promotions up. We should talk about um, something that's non-packaged goods. Uh, we haven't talked about Ford's increasing its budgets and some of the insurance companies that you've seen, uh, at least in the US, are lifting as well. So if we get outside packaged goods and consumer goods in that context, Brian, is it uh, a trend that's happening beyond those sectors? Well, cars are a fascinating uh, area to look at. You know, we don't have great data from every one of the world's largest auto manufacturers. Uh, the American big three, we do have good data. Even, you know, most of that spend is in the United States, but I think it's fascinating. This is US data, and maybe you could do some analysis on Australia and tell me if the trend holds. I looked recently at the largest automotive advertisers, sorry, the largest advertisers across all categories using data from AdAge. For the US market? For the US market. Yep. I want to say it was looking at like 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020. <laughs> and, you know, the auto manufacturers were, you go down the list from General Motors to, through Toyota, Hyundai, et cetera. And you just watch how they were kind of stable as large, among the largest advertisers. And then they just started to fall precipitously in the last decade in terms of their yeah. relative size. Like they were all cutting spend while newer, larger advertisers were emerging completely displacing them in terms of their relative importance. And so you definitely see this. This um, There's a lot of focus on, let's call it efficiency, for lack of a better word. There's a, a recognition that, well, wait, Tesla is managing to do what it does without spending money on advertising. Why are we? EVs don't need to be advertised. At least this was part of the attitude that, that I think you would hear from companies. Now, they'd say marketing, sure, but advertising? And so you see this in the data, too. It looks like auto manufacturers have generally been cutting uh, quite a lot, uh, mm. and they become less significant as a category as a result. Really interesting. Okay, so let's get to the final one, which is despite everything we've just talked about, 
fascinating that tech companies are going the other way. So they're cutting. So talk to us about, you know, what you've seen in Amazon's results, Alphabet's results, Meta's results. And uh, you do make the point in one of your briefings that they are ironically benefiting from all this growth, but they're, you know, cutting themselves. Talk us through the what's going on with tech. Yeah, well, I think that you can go, again, Elon Musk uh, gets blame, credit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think for a lot of what we've seen, I think that, and, and I guess we could compound that uh, with Mark Zuckerberg's uh, focus on the so-called year of efficiency, or as I noted at the time, years of efficiency uh, <laughs> that would likely likely be coming, because you had such rapid growth in arguably ill-defined processes, maybe not as much focus on the most efficient way to run things, and and you know when you pair the that that right sizing that that Meta was going through because of well, investor distaste at overinvestment in something like metaverse and other things that weren't going to be a reality anytime soon, unless you don't care about legs. And um, then you had Musk going in and buying then Twitter. And even though I think everybody knew he would fail, that was kind of obvious. I think people were fascinated by the fact that, well, wait, what? maybe you can cut 80% of your business out. And like maybe... Maybe you don't have to cut 80% of your business out because, you know, Twitter or X now could still run itself into the ground. It probably will. But what if you only cut by 40%? (laughs) Maybe you could actually keep the lights on for like forever. And because, and I still go back to look at Google's metrics in the year, around the years they went public, right? They were a big ish company at that time with like 70% profit margins and they didn't Mm. have that many people. Now, you could argue they, they obviously broadened and started doing a lot of other things. But I think that there was this concept of first principles that took root. The idea that, well, okay, maybe we don't think Elon's going to succeed and we don't really want to mirror what he's doing exactly, but he might be on to something. And so what I think has happened is that most companies that are Silicon Valley-based have embraced something that we would otherwise recognize as zero-based budgeting. Right. They're basically looking with somewhat fresh eyes and saying, well, wait, what if we didn't do that? What would happen? And asking that question more aggressively than they did in the past. And zero-based budgeting for those that may not be deep into that, give us a top-line take on that. Well, I would recommend, certainly read up on the Wikipedia entry on it for great detail on its historical origins and how it was applied and not successfully necessarily uh, in the U.S. government of all places. Apparently, it's an original application of the concept. But the idea is that theoretically you should be, you know, you shouldn't have, if a normal company takes whatever the budget was last year and then adds some percentage to it, you would work under the presumption that whatever you did last year, you're going to keep doing next year. And you're going to iterate slightly to establish what your budget will be. The idea of zero-based budgeting is don't assume anything about next year. Every year you go into a budget planning process under the presumption that Nothing is fixed. And the reality is that very few organizations can operate that way because some things require multi-year commitments or you end up with tremendous risk. I mean, if every employee of a company said, well, maybe I'll have a job next year, maybe I won't, you're not going to attract as many people as a company that conveys more commitment, right? Similarly, if you're a supplier, if you're a customer, you're not sure that you're going to get the same service level or you know, the same volume of demand, and so there was real reason to have a, a longer time horizon. This historical way of doing things is more efficient. With that said, 
st- because of 3G ad- being an adherent to the concept and believing that they're, the companies that they acquire should apply zero-based budgeting concepts, there was an active effort to do a lot more of that in the companies that they acquired. And the reality is that I think it was used as a means of leverage more than anything else. It was used as a means to slash and burn things. Cost out, yeah. Yeah, where they thought they could get away with it more than anything else. And it doesn't, certainly there would be a fun oral history to be had on on the applications of zero-based budgeting in the advertising industry. But my take was always that it just, it led to a lot of inefficient cutting, not efficient cutting. And that's why Kraft Heinz blew up. And that's the parallel. You think text going, so what is that? Will they pull that off? They don't. The irony here is that they are, at least the three we talked about, Alphabet, Amazon, and Meta, are raking in the dollars to your performance point earlier on, right? So your take on that, will it blow up? Are they so powerful now? And are we in, you know, like we could go into all sorts of things, but basically those companies that are taking that growth and advertising around performance, pulling back themselves. And do you see that changing or is it literally that the money machine's just taking it? Hard to say. Hard to say. You know, I think that, it's not implausible to think that many of these companies could go through a multi-year process, just like we saw in packaged goods, right? And we saw the consequences of that on agencies in the 2010s. I would argue it was one of the more important factors causing their lack of growth in the 2015 to 2019 period. And it's not implausible to say that this could persist. It's not just a one-year thing, but it could also be a one-year thing. There's just mm-hmm. no way to really yeah. know. Overall, what next about the next 12 months? So what do you see the big things that are on your radar that that the market um, should be thinking about? Well, if I'm a marketer, I mean, it is this whole performance and brand divide. You know, there's news again today when we're recording this on uh, Walmart reportedly uh, looking at buying Vizio, which, you know, for their US-based advertising business, a US-centric manufacturer of television sets that has a decent-sized connected TV ad business. And I think it speaks to this concept that you know marketers know they need brand. They know that television builds brand, but they've got to focus on something resembling performance. They've got to be able to claim performance. They need people, they need suppliers who can incredibly supply performance. And so a Walmart getting more TV inventory in this way is like, is that peanut butter and chocolate? Is that a, is that a real, or wait, should it be Vegemite and bread coming together? What's the right? Yeah, Vegemite and toast. Yeah, Vegemite and toast. There you go. Vegemite toast coming together example, right? And so I think that seeing how that trend evolves, because as one of my former colleagues in China lamented when I was talking with him in 2019 about why is it that, you know, even though the Chinese numbers that then Group M was tracking, showing, and, and my colleague, I really respect, he was doing amazing work. And he was showing how all the online video suppliers paired with television were collectively declining. And I was like, why is that going on? Like, would it be growing? And he said, no, because nobody cares about brands anymore. Like, they don't want to build brands. So even the large Western marketers, they're focused completely on performance. This was China 2019, five years ago. And I think that that's what's happened now. And I think that What's really interesting to watch is, will marketers sacrifice efforts to build brands completely or just continue to marginalize it slightly? Super interesting. Let's leave it there because that's a rhetorical question or a question that we should ponder. Brian Weezer, great conversation. Madison and Wall is your your new gig and uh, I I read it avidly and um, we're going to come back next week to talk about Holdco's 
and media. And that gets really interesting. That's where you get a bit deeper. So thanks for joining and don't let it, I don't know, snow over in Portland so we can't talk next week. Thanks for joining, Brian. Thanks very much. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.